questions are his answers to those questions. So this is why the book takes on a laundry list feel. Like he's hitting all these different issues that they had questions about when they responded to his letter, his initial letter to them. But one of the biggest issues in the first three chapters of this book is division over leadership. Who's following who? There's been disunity about who's the best leader, who's the best teacher. And I think this highlights a modern problem today, and, and it's what I would call consumer Christianity. So what is, what is consumer Christianity? Well, let's define consumerism. I would define consumerism this way. So a, a company's job is to produce goods and services for my benefit or enjoyment. And if I don't like something, well, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. This is how the world works. We all know this to be true, especially where we live today. So if you've noticed, our, our relationship to companies or businesses or restaurants is fairly transactional. I'll come pay you to do for me, and the moment you stop doing for me, I'm taking my business, I'm going somewhere else. That's how it works. So I think of how uh, a couple years ago, we had saved some airline miles for a number of years, I think eight or nine years, we'd saved up airline miles, and we decided to take the kids to this really cool vacation. We'd saved miles for a long time, and so we break the news, we're going to go to Bermuda with the kids on a vacation, right? And we're so excited. We're so pumped for this trip. And so the plan is to go to DFW, fly from there to Miami, then Miami to Bermuda. And the whole thing's laid out for us for a little, little over a week. And, uh, and everything that could go wrong with the flights on this trip did, in fact, go wrong for us. So we go to DFW, about to get on the plane, and there's only going to be an hour layover in Miami. So there's no room for air. If we leave late from DFW, we're going to miss our connecting flight in Miami and possibly to stay the night in Miami. So we we're waiting at DFW, and they start delaying the flight, and we're getting worried, and we finally get on the plane. We're thinking we're going to make it in time. Get on the plane, and they say, this plane has mechanical issues. We've got to get you off this plane. You can't fly on this plane today. So we get up, we deplane, we go back into the airport at DFW, and then um, we now know we're going to miss the flight in Miami. We're not going to make it. So I'm booking flights for the next day. We're trying to figure out all that mess. And, uh, and then they get us on another plane. And we get on that plane, and it's just blazing hot inside the cabin of this plane. They shut the door. People are sweating profusely. Everyone's fanning their faces. Then they come on the PA, and they say, uh, the AC's not working on this plane. We've got to get you off this plane as well. So we enter back into the airport again. And so now we're on to our third plane. And we're flying out late at night. It's, it's a big mess. So we finally get to Miami. We stay the night in Miami. We fly out the next day to Bermuda. The trip itself was great. Nothing wrong with that. But then coming back, I'm on the tarmac in Bermuda. About to Our flight back home is going to go from Bermuda to D.C., then to DFW. And uh, I'm on the tarmac in Bermuda, and they come on the PA, and they say, actually, that I got a text message on my phone saying that my flight from D.C. to DFW had been canceled. Got to book a different flight. So I'm feverishly trying to find a new phone through the app, or a new uh, flight through the app on my phone. I book a flight, another flight, we're good. Um, we finally take off. We're now headed to D.C. We get to D.C., and they say there is weather around the airport in D.C., so we've got to circle for an hour. And so now we're going to miss the connecting flight to DFW from D.C., and so end up staying at a hotel in the D.C. area, which was not a bad situation at all. But then that night, I'm on the app on my phone. I'm looking at my phone for the, the new flight the next day to fly back to DFW, and... uh 
the, the, the flight's not showing up on my phone. And so I call this particular airline and uh, ask them, hey, what's going on? They say, we don't know where your tickets are. We've lost your, your digital ticket. And I'm thinking, how do you lose a digital ticket? And so this, I was on, the, on hold for an hour and a half until 1.30 in the morning trying to get this thing sorted out. We finally get it done. We finally make it back to Texas after this long travel ordeal. And how excited do you think I would be to ever fly on that airline ever again? I mean, the way the world works is you do me wrong that many times, and chances are I'm taking my business and I'm going elsewhere. This is just how things work in our world. And we're used to these ideas and we're used to, we're used to this kind of transactional relationship when it comes to, you know, the economy and businesses and restaurants and so on. Now in Paul's day, people didn't have choices. So if you didn't like something about the church body you're a part of, chances are you're, you're kind of stuck with it. There's not some other place down the street for you to check out and to figure out if you like that better so you might say something like this, consumerism is good for the economy, but it's often bad for the church. If we only see our relationship to the church as this transactional relationship, like a restaurant or business, we're going to miss out on the true purpose of the church. And this really gets challenged later in the book when Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He refers to the church like a human body. You see, our relationship shouldn't be transactional. The human body is interwoven together, and it all works together as one. And this is how Paul's going to mention later in the book how the church is supposed to be. And so consumer Christianity is not just a modern issue. It was an ancient issue as well. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. So Paul calls this church, he calls them brothers, showing that he considers them believers, to be believers. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul has said there are two kinds of people in the world, spiritual and natural. This is saved and unsaved. Now he says there's two kinds of saved people. There's mature and immature. So he calls them believers, but he says they are immature And we would expect a young Christian to be immature, but it's been a few years since Paul planted this church, and they really should be further along than what they are. Now, you and I today, we live in this don't-judge-me world. The Jesus quote over in Matthew chapter 7 is one of the most misquoted verses of all time, judge not, lest ye be judged. But in the church today, in the church today, we don't mind judging the world out there, but we really look at ourselves in the body of Christ. But later in this book, Paul's going to say that we have it reversed. We should leave the judging of the world to God, but we should look at ourselves. We should judge ourselves, not self-righteously, but from a place of, of love. So Paul is saying, I think you're saved, but right now your lives don't look like it, church in Corinth. We live in a world today where if someone is technically saved, then no one can judge them or speak into their life about maturity issues. That's the climate that we have today. It's, it's you know, you, you mind your business, I'll mind my business. We'll, we'll attend church together, but don't approach me or 
I'm not going to approach you and speak into your life. You're not going to speak into my life. Like, you don't have the right to speak into my life in that way. So I think we are too content to remain in spiritual infancy much of our lives. You might say it like this. The Christian life is the only life where we mask our immaturity under the banner of grace. But grace should fuel growth, not stunt growth. Grace should be the mechanism by which we grow, not an excuse to not grow, not an excuse to say, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm, I'm justified, I'm declared righteous before God, so it doesn't really matter what my life looks like. That's not really a biblical view of what grace is. Later in the book of 1 Corinthians, we, we would see that when, when the Corinthian people saw evil, they would call it good. And they would celebrate in their minds how gracious they were. And Paul calls them out for that as well. We don't put up with immaturity in other areas of our lives. So I think of my daughter who, um, when she was a baby, Sienna, when she was just starting to crawl, my wife was at work and I was watching the kids. And I looked over at her and she'd been crawling around the house. And, you know, when, you're, when you first have kids, when they're in the, when they're, when they're just an infant, it's, it's, it's okay because they're not mobile yet. But once they start going mobile, that's when life gets really scary. And so my daughter is crawling around the house, and I look over at her, and she has that look on her face like she has something in her mouth. I'm not quite sure what it is. And so I walk over to her, and I squeeze her little fat cheeks together on her face, and out comes this huge cockroach. And I am just horrified. (laughs) And I think I used a whole bottle of mouthwash on her that day. Didn't tell my wife for about a week or so. But, you know, she turned 10 back in September. If she was still doing that at her birthday party, we're going to have some issues, right? Because we expect kids to, we expect immaturity when when they're infants or toddlers, but we expect growth, maturity. And if a mother sees her child isn't growing at the right pace, she's concerned. She goes to the doctor and says, hey, something's wrong here. And so really, Paul, this is Paul's interest. He's not, this is not some judgmental thing for him. He is interested in the maturity of the Corinthian church. So when Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, what is that? What is he getting at there? Well, milk would be Christianity 101. This is the basics. This is you know, solid food might be more advanced doctrine, but milk is Christianity 101. So Paul says, you aren't living out the basics very well, church in Corinth. I want to give you the meat, but you're still spitting up the milk. I want to give you the, the meatier stuff, but you're still spitting up the basic things. And it's been a few years since he's seen them. And in this letter, he has to address some basic things. Paul has to address disunity, division, sexual immorality, getting drunk off communion wine, people suing each other. And back then, if they were in a pandemic and had to deal with the face mask thing, they would have fought about that too. They were a disunified congregation. So Paul is asking, listen, church, why why are these things your biggest dilemmas as a church? Your problems should be things like, How do we disciple all these new believers? 
How do we help the poor? How do we allow people to use their spiritual gifts for the building up and edification of the church? So those are the dilemmas of a church that's mature. You know, um, several years ago now, I had, as a high school pastor, I had this senior class that was a really big senior class, and I was thankful that they were still involved and plugged in for their senior year. But we had like 15 guys in the class, which is just huge for any, most senior classes that for in, in most churches. And I'd say about five of those guys were, were coming and attending and all claimed to be Christians. But there was just something that was just not, there was a real immaturity struggle with, with some of these guys. And I was having issues with leaders saying, hey, like in discussion on Wednesdays, these guys are the biggest distraction. And the rest of the guys want to learn and grow. And these guys are just distracting everybody. And so I, I kind of made it my personal project. I'm going to take those guys aside and just kind of do something separate with them on Wednesday nights. And I was having the same issues. And I know they were kind of more of the party crowd. I, I knew their background and all that. Just trying to meet them where they're at. But they all claim to be Christians. And finally, one Wednesday, I just said, hey, listen, I'm not mad at you guys, but I just want to know, like, what, what, what is it? Like, what, what's going on with you? And they all said something very, so they're like, you know, we just feel like we come here on Wednesdays. We, we already know this stuff. Like everything y'all are talking about, we, we already know all this. And I didn't get defensive. I just let them say what they were going to say. But I will tell you that that is a statement I have heard from students over the years. And I will tell you, parents, it is a red flag statement. And here's why. Because in that statement, there is a lot of pride Someone is saying, listen, those, those basic things, y'all, the basic doctrines of the faith, I got that nailed. I already understand all that. But what I've noticed in my years in high school ministry is that very often the person who says that is very often living a life that might look more like the church in Corinth. And it's just this ironic thing to me that the person who's often bragging about how much they know, who says they've already got all that nailed, I already understand all of that stuff, give me, give me the meat, give me something with more substance, it's usually that person that's not living out the basics all that well. And this is kind of what's happening here in the church in Corinth. When I hear someone say those words, it almost never ends well. I'll tell you that the five guys I'm thinking about, each one of them graduated, and it was like train wreck, train wreck, train wreck, because there was, there was no living out the basics of the Christian faith. This assumption that if I just mentally understand something, that means I've got it. No, you're not living this stuff out. And this is really what Paul is addressing in the church here in Corinth. It does no good to give someone meat when they're still spitting up the milk. Look with me at the end of verse two. It says, and even now you're not ready. You're not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So now Paul tells them why he calls them immature. And this is, he says, exhibit A. It's because of your jealousy and strife that I see among you. You know, Paul and Apollos were very different people. 
and based on their gift set, people began to hold them up almost like idols. And Paul is saying, no, listen, don't, 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 you're looking too much at us. Don't look at us. We're not the point. You know, following a, a leader or a teacher should never trump following Christ. Now, is it wrong to appreciate and honor and love certain Christian leaders? Of course not. But they shouldn't replace, replace Jesus. If there is only, is there only one or two teachers or preachers that you listen to? Or only one or two authors that you like to read? What's ironic about the, the digital world today is that we have access to more people than ever before. But then we still just, we compare everybody. We pick one or two and just follow those one or two. And it leads to this kind of narrow tribalism in the church. And, and right now, the irony of that is right now, we have so many options. But, I mean, those of us like, like me, Dave, other people that are preaching in local churches, like we, we just get compared to the celebrity culture anyway, right? Because everyone has access to that. And so, unlike here in Corinth, where there are these local guys, Paul and Apollos, that are being compared, you know, so often for us, we get, uh, we buy into the temptation to think, you know, this person, this theologian, this pastor is right about everything, and everyone else is just wrong. And somehow that's always the person that I follow. I once heard Pastor David Platt say, something in my theology is wrong. I'm just not sure what it is. That's really a nice way of saying, don't follow me too closely. I'm wrong about something. I'm wrong about lots of things. I'm just not quite sure what they are. I'm not going to find out till much later maybe what those things might be. But Paul says here that following mere men leads us to live like mere men. Putting humans on a pedestal, putting human leaders on a pedestal, and following mere men instead of Jesus Christ himself leads us to live just like the people that we're following, which is mere men and women. So what do do most of us say whenever we make a mistake or we fall into sin? We say, I'm only, what, fill in the blank, I'm only human. But whenever you and I have the spirit living inside of us, We are more than that. He is dwelling within us. And so Paul is calling them to live in the power of the Spirit. And if there are factions and divisions, there is evidence that we're not doing that as a church. I love this play on words uh, that you see in verses 1 and 3. In your Bible, they're probably the same word, flesh or fleshly. But verse 1, it is sarkinos, composed of flesh. Verse 3, it's a different Greek word, sarkikos, one letter off which means looks like flesh. And this is why this is so important. If you think about a, an analogy of something that's leather versus something that's actually imitation leather. So something that's leather, of course, composed of leather, like composed of flesh, like real flesh, and something that looks like flesh or looks like leather imitation, that's the picture Paul is trying to draw here. Because Paul is saying in the first verse, You look like, your life looks like someone composed of flesh, someone who's not a believer. But then he also says that he calls them brothers. So I think he's he's saying they are truly believers. They're truly saved. So in verse 3, he says, your life looks like flesh. Even though I believe you're saved truly, your life looks like that of an unbeliever. 
I think it's the distinction he's making in this passage. Look down at verse 5. It says, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos' water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So in these verses, Paul answers the question, how is it that Paul and Apollos are to be viewed? And his answer is that they should be viewed like like farmers. Now, as Joey said earlier, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and I, I like to identify with that, you know, the city, because it just sounds cooler. But here's the reality. I grew up on a farm, essentially. My grandfather had some farmland. He actually had and I don't mean like what you, when you think of farm, you mean like, like 10 chickens and a couple of cows. It's not what it was. He had like 120 head of cows, head of cattle, and he had milked them twice a day, like a big dairy farm operation, like a legitimate farm is what he owned. And we grew up just down the road from him. And when I think of my grandfather, he was a very simple person. If you've been around a farm, farming life is not impressive. It's fairly simple. There's a lot of hard work and dedication, but it's not, it's not some flashy job. My grandfather wore, I'm not kidding, the same outfit every single day. Now, he owned 13 of them, and I could see um, this thing for the young people, this thing called a clothesline at my grandparents' house from my house. I could see it from my house, and my grandmother would do his laundry. She, he would have like six pairs of, of jean, like overalls on the clothesline and the same exact, like 13 of like the same button down blue shirt. He wore the same thing every single day. He's a very simple person, a very hardworking, simple person. Wasn't a flashy person at all. But when I think about him in his, in his, in his profession as a farmer, we recognize that um, every year he would till the field, he would plant a crop, he would pray for rain. He recognized that he was at the mercy of the elements. He had no control over it. He could, he could do some environmental things, but he had to wait on God to show up with, the, with rain and, and, and sunshine if things were going to grow. And so when a crop grows, we don't, we don't sing praises to the farmer when the crop, when the, when the crop grows. We don't see anything special about the farmer. We recognize that all the farmer did was put some seed in the ground and, and water it. But, but God causes the growth. We, we, we recognize it's a miraculous process. If my grandfather ever came over to our house and was, if he ever tried to brag about how good he did at the seed planting and even the watering, we'd be like, you're crazy. That's that. That's just, that's not a big deal. Like you're, you're doing just the basics. I mean, it's, we recognize there's a miraculous process to that kind of growth. And this is the picture that I think Paul is trying to paint for us here. This is also true of, of pastoring and shepherding. So preparing sermons, many of us see, you know, sermon preparation or the sermon as being, this, this grandiose thing, and it is an important thing to, to feed the body of Christ with the word of God. But when you look at what Paul's saying here, whenever 
I go and prepare a sermon and come and deliver it to any church, I mean, what I'm doing essentially is I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing this. Whenever some of you preparing a Bible study or a community group discussion, meeting with someone at Starbucks just for encouragement, counsel, I mean, here's what you're doing. You're, you're doing this. You're pouring water on a seed. Maybe you're putting seed in the ground. Some of you here, you're really good seed planters. You're really good at evangelism and sharing your faith, and you're a great seed planter. Others of you might be great at discipling and watering and helping that seed to grow. But reality is, we don't take credit for that growth. We don't look at a plant and think that we take credit for the growth that happens because of our watering and seed plant. That'd be foolish for us to do that. At the same time, I can't take credit when my students grow. Dave can't take credit when the people here in this church grow spiritually. We're just putting seed in the ground or pouring water on the seed. Recognize that God causes the growth. We can't take credit for that. So what this reminds us of is that pastors should be more like farmers and less like rock stars. Less like celebrities. One of the things that I appreciated when I did move here back in 2004, when I first met Gary DeSalvo, who was the lead pastor at TBC for a number of years, for 38 plus years, and then Dave was on, David Murray was on staff at TBC at the same time, is that, you know, guys like Dave and guys like Gary were, were regular guys that you could just relate to and talk to. And I love that about them. And, you know, some churches, even some, some big churches will have, you know, this thing behind the stage called a green room. Where, where the pastor maybe goes back there before he preaches and there's like platters of fruit, water at 42 degrees, individually wrapped cashews. I don't know what's back there in that room when churches have those kinds of places. But I was grateful that, you know, the church that I was attending or church I was working at at TBC, we don't have that kind of pretense. It's just like he's just one of the guys that gets up on stage, he preaches a sermon and doesn't take himself too seriously. And we live in a culture, of course, now where there's like the celebrity rock star kind of pastor persona because of just the way that um, media works and all of that. But listen, a ministry should always point beyond itself. A A good sermon should always point beyond itself. As preachers, we can get sucked into thinking that the power lies in our own words, that, that, that our words are special. And we can lose focus of that. Now listen, on the other hand, we don't diminish the work. Because if the farmer doesn't plant, and if the farmer doesn't water, what happens? Well, nothing. Nothing's going to happen if the farmer doesn't plant and doesn't water. So there's this weird tension that we have to live in in the church, that God has allowed us to participate in the work, and it matters how we do the work. This passage isn't saying leadership doesn't matter or or gifting doesn't matter. We have to live in this tension that, yes, conversion and spiritual growth are of God and from God. It all originates with him, but 
he in his grace, he uses humans to play an important role, just like he does with a farmer who's tilling up the soil and putting a seed in the ground and putting down, putting water onto that seed and watering it to see if it can grow. So there's a responsibility that we all have to see those things happen, but at the same time, we can't take credit for it. So elsewhere, Paul writes about qualifications for being a deacon or an elder. He talks about the character, how the character of a leader matters. We'll see that all throughout the epistles in the New Testament. He also writes in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, about spiritual gifts. Listen, everyone's gifted differently, and that should be accounted for when people lead. If someone's not gifted at mercy, they probably shouldn't be the person who's going to the, do the hospital visits or doing the really intense counseling if they're just not good at those kinds of things. If someone's not gifted at teaching, they probably shouldn't be in that kind of role. So, so listen, gifting matters, and, and leadership matters. Paul's not saying it doesn't matter. He's simply saying don't idolize and put on a pedestal your leaders and teachers. I think of uh, a couple of years ago as a staff at TBC, we went to, um, we go to a, a city about every other year as a staff just to go look, go to a conference or even go create our own conference sometimes, visiting churches and those kinds of things. And about two years ago, we went to Atlanta, Georgia to go and visit some churches. And also uh, part of the, that trip involved us going to, uh, the Chick-fil-A headquarters to talk to their, their community program and, and is hear how they uh, reach out to their local areas within their, from their stores with their community partners. And it was also just really interesting to see how they create their corporate culture in that company. I mean, you know this. If you, if you go to a local Chick-fil-A, you can just see it's just a little bit different. It just has a different culture, a different vibe from other kinds of restaurants that are in the fast food industry. And uh, so it was really interesting seeing um, their headquarters. And the guy giving us the tour takes us up onto this one floor in their headquarters. And we can see this glass wall in this boardroom. And he says, that right in there is the CEO, like the son of the founder, meeting with those people in there, talking about some plans. And then next thing you know, the CEO is waving us into the boardroom as a group. And so our staff Okay, so we're going to go in and meet the Chick-fil-A CEO guy. So we go into the boardroom, and the guy is just asking us questions like who we are, where we're from. We're explaining why we're in Atlanta, why we're there visiting their company. And, and he just begins sharing what they're working on there in that meeting and just opening himself up. And he begins sharing passionately why he's so passionate about his dad's company and the things they do beyond just selling chicken. And so the guy starts getting so passionate, he starts to shed tears. I mean, the guy is shedding tears about chicken sandwiches. But you can just see the passion and the energy that flows from the top. And so listen, leadership matters. There's a reason why when you walk into one of those places, it might just feel different. I saw it firsthand. It comes from the top. So listen, creating culture matters in a company or a church. Those things matter a great deal. Leadership matters. Gifting matters. Paul's not saying those things don't matter. 
But he's saying, don't let who you follow, don't let that divide you. And that's the thing he's focusing here in this chapter. You know, if we saw these two men today, Paul and Apollos, do you know we get them confused? Because Paul's the one that we know. We think of Paul today as some Christian celebrity because he wrote Bible. It's a big deal. But if he were here, if Paul walked in right now, we'd say, well, well Dave, you need to go sit down. Like, let's put Paul on the stage. Let, let Paul finish the sermon. But do you know, according to Paul's own words, that he wasn't a very good preacher? But Apollos was. Apollos was known as the great preacher. When Apollos preached, the place was packed. That wasn't the case for Paul. If we did a church conference, Apollos would be the keynote speaker, and Paul would have maybe led a breakout session. You know, the irony here is that the preachers that Corinth loved are barely known to us today, but the one they overlooked, Paul, is the one that we know today. And why is that? Because God had different assignments. He had different roles for these different men. I think it's easy today to get caught up in the competition game of the ministry world. You know, God has different assignments for each, but that should not lead to strife or jealousy in the body of Christ. I like how Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, a mature Christian uses his gifts as tools to build with, while an immature believer uses gifts as toys to play with or trophies to boast about. Many of the members of the Corinthian church enjoyed showing off their gifts, but they were not interested in serving one another and edifying the church. Everyone's gifted differently. And that is God's wisdom so that that he gets the glory. I'm often humbled at how many different gifts it requires to pull off virtually anything in the church. I mean, just coming in here and seeing there's a person doing each little role on a Sunday morning here. And the same is true for midweek groups and so on. I know here, and whether you're doing mission outreach events, it, it all requires so many people to pull it off. And here's the reality in the church is that God has gifted so many people so differently. So it requires all of them to share in those roles and those duties so that he gets the glory and not one individual gets that glory. And that's the wisdom of God at work. So often we allow gifting to lead to rivalry, jealous, jealousy, instead of partnership, collaboration, unity, working together as a body. But gifting should lead to partnership and seeing each other in that way. Look at verse 8. It says, he who plants... And he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You know, sometimes factions arise because the leaders are immature. And the leaders are creating the factions. The leaders have fostered that, the, the division. But that's not the case here with Paul and Apollos. Paul is saying that he and Apollos are one, they're unified. That's not the issue. You know, if we see one farmer planting seeds, another farmer coming along, coming along and pouring water on the seed, we don't give greater glory to one versus the other. We don't play that game when it comes to farming, do we? 
we, we don't say which one should get, which one had the most important task. We don't do that. We see them as one. The same team working together for a common cause. We see the cause as much bigger than the workers themselves. So Paul says, Apollos and I are one, and I wish that you would follow our example. So how do we avoid jealousy and strife in the body of Christ? Well, verse 9 tells us, Paul says, we need to see the leaders and the people in the proper light. Need to see the leaders as simply God's fellow workers, God's servants. So not rock stars, more like farmers, cultivating the soil and planting the seeds and watering those seeds. Need to see the people as God's field or God's building. So Paul's been using a farming analogy, but now he switches to architecture. You know, we always say that the church isn't a building, and we've been reminded of that, especially the last eight months or so. But Paul says the church is a building. Just not the kind that we thought it was. It is a spiritual building being built by God. So notice the emphasis on possession. You are God's field. You are God's building. The church is his possession. It doesn't belong to any one preacher, teacher, or leader. The whole thing belongs to him. You know, in Corinth, buildings had inscriptions on them. Many of them did. And I can't interpret what these words mean right, right here, but many buildings had inscriptions on them. It may be describing what the building was or somewhere inscribed with people's names like you might see today. The benefactor of the building maybe gave some money for it, and so that was dedicated to them. But when Paul says this, you are God's building, it's as if he's saying, my name isn't on your building. Apollos' name isn't on your building. God's name is on the building. You belong to him. And the same is true for you here at GBC. You are his possession. If we are like a spiritual building, then his name is on this building. And I don't mean to belabor this point. I know, I'm sure Dave has done this the last few months too, but man, it, it has felt like every sermon we preach at TBC somehow comes back to COVID, right? It always comes back to COVID. I don't mean to belabor that point, but if the last eight months have taught me anything personally, it is this, I cannot find my identity in a ministry position. You know, March 8th, when I preached here, was like the last regular Sunday I remember. And I will tell you that, that one, two of my worst fears would be preaching to a camera and preaching to an empty room. Like every preacher has the worst, the nightmare that like you're going to preach a sermon, but like no one showed up that Sunday. They just didn't feel like coming. But that's been the way it's been for like six months or so. And so listen, I have realized a lot of things the last few months. I cannot find my identity in a ministry position. My position, your position is in Christ. And all of us struggle with consumer Christianity. Listen, I can sit up here and rail against consumer Christianity and how it affects the church and the congregations. But listen, I struggle with it too. Because whenever the relationship becomes transactional between the congregation and the church itself, people like me, we feed that monster. We, 
we, we feed that thing all the time in how we even set things up or how we talk about the church and present the church to the congregation. So all of us struggle with consumer Christianity, leaders as well. And so we know that the coronavirus has done a lot of killing these last few months. But may it be in God's providence that he is using it to kill off consumer Christianity. You know, when Paul came to Corinth, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul, he, he stripped it down intentionally. He stripped it down, took away their, their rhetoric and their sophistry, their, their human wisdom. He, he took all that away. And he said, I just came to, to preach to you the simple gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected. He stripped it down so they would not miss the power of the cross. And so maybe this stripped down state is exactly where God wants us to be. Let's pray. God, thank you for your gospel. We thank you for how you constantly remind us over and over and over again how you're at work in ways that we can't explain, that we can't understand. There isn't one person in this room that thought nine months ago things would look like this. Yet we know you are teaching us, you are growing us. God, you are causing the growth to happen miraculously. God, may we never take our hand off the plow. May we never take our hands off of doing the work that you've given us to do. We thank you for the privilege that we have to participate with you in the work in some way that we can't even understand. But God, I also pray for just the things that GBC here is walking through, just like we are over at TBC, that that there would be peace, there'd be unity, there would be this, this sense of like we're on this mission together. God has still called us to reach our city in spite of some human limitations. And God, help us to see it as that. And to be wise people and discerning people as we walk that road, Father, together. We pray this in your name. Amen.